0: Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories
1: and challenges. SOAR Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Welcome to today's Leader Dialogue podcast, co-sponsored by the Baldridge Foundation and SOAR Vision Group. My name is Lisa Council, and I'm the Chief Commercial Officer for Soar Vision Group. Joining me again as co-host is Dr. Roger Spoolman. Dr. Spoolman is an accomplished healthcare executive and coach, having served as President and CEO of Mercy Health, a regional network of hospitals, physician organizations, and health network operations in Western and Northern Michigan. He also served as a Senior Executive for Trinity Health, one of the largest health systems in the United States. And as part two, today we will be discussing workforce engagement post COVID-19, specifically the workforce of physicians. I'd like to welcome back Chuck Stokes. Chuck is the former CEO and president of Memorial Hermann Health System. He joined the system in 2008 as chief operating officer, and he was named president in 2017, president and CEO of the system. Chuck retired from Memorial Hermann effective December, 2019. I'm sure that they're missing you at Memorial Hermann these days, Chuck. And I'd also like to give a shout out to all nurses because Chuck started his career as a nurse and worked his way to the CEO. Our second guest today is Dr. Shabbat, And Dr. Shabbat also came from Memorial Hermann along with many other physician leadership positions. And Dr. Shabbat is the founding partner of RELIA Healthcare Advisors, which provides services in the areas of high reliability, safety, and quality, executive leadership development, organizational cultural assessment, medical staff governance, and the implementation of the Malcolm Baldrige Quality Framework. On each show, we highly encourage the listening audience to follow along on our website, leaderdialogue.com. That's leader. Dialogue dot com, and at the bottom of the main webpage is a visual Baldridge hierarchy, and it's much like the Maslow's hierarchy. So we will embed the Baldridge criteria in our conversations today and for our episode next week. So Roger, I would like to turn it over to you to welcome our guests.
2: Thank you, Lisa. And uh, in case our listening audience hasn't picked up on the fact that you are You're not really a former nurse, because once a nurse, always a nurse, but you serve (laughs) faithfully as a nurse leader. And so we thank you for your service, Lisa. Thanks so much for all that you've done. And uh, we we couldn't get along without nurses, that's for sure. Hey, Chuck, welcome back. It's uh, the last time we talked, which was just recently. Uh, We had a great time, didn't we? Talking about our um, impeccable timing the two of us had in terms of selecting our retirement time. Uh, getting out of healthcare leadership just in time, so that we now can look back and make all kinds of just brilliant, wise comments about uh, <laughs> advising people about what they should have done or how they should have handled this. But oh my goodness, uh, it it really is interesting, isn't it? Yes. And and we had a great discussion, and you shared your passion about about employee engagement, associate engagement. In the healthcare field, and, and and we also talked about the fact that this COVID pandemic has been sort of like for healthcare workers, it's been sort of like 9-11 for firefighters and for police and first responders, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. We so we are just indebted to the the very the wonderful men and women who are serving in our healthcare systems, and uh, and and their world has been completely upended. And uh, we'll want to talk more about that. But you brought, you said, I I really want to bring my friend and and colleague partner, Dr. Shabbat, along. And uh, so we want to talk about that same topic about employee engagement. And now, from the physician perspective, um, we don't often think about that because with so many physicians being tied to the health system, and the hospital, not their offices, uh, their individual offices. They're tied to the health system. So, right. um, so thanks for that suggestion, Chuck. And I want to just ask Dr. Shabbat, Michael, um, you're a surgeon, and uh, surgeons do things in the hospital generally, and that's how you make your living. And you have, I'm sure, many colleagues who had a forced vacation, Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the the implications of physicians being unable to practice their their craft and uh, what COVID has done to them.
0: Well, it's been very significant. And we hear a lot about the plight, and it's quite real, of physicians and nurses and others uh, in hospitals and in facilities. Um, But we haven't heard much about specialty physicians, including surgeons and others whose practice uh, very much depends on hospitals functioning, quote, as normal, close quote. And in addition, uh, they they see patients in their own offices and their offices have had to undergo very significant changes to see patients safely uh, in this COVID era. So two things have happened. Number one, I'll just mention this first. It may not be the most important, but their their office expenses have increased because of the need for PPE. And in the offices I visited in this COVID era, there's an extra person at the front door doing screening and taking temperatures before right. you even get in the front door. Yeah. That person didn't used to be there before. Right. And that's, that's, all, that's all that person does. Secondly, they, they, in their offices, they can only see a limited number of patients because they've had to remove chairs or block off chairs, and nobody wants to be crowded. But then finally, and of course, very importantly, in the hospital, there are, procedures were um, radically decreased. So any procedure-related physician be there be there a, so be they a surgeon, a cardiologist, a gastroenterologist, anybody that does procedures in hospitals and hospital or outpatient facilities, those procedures went down by 90 to 95%. And as you know, that's the bread and butter of income for those folks. They don't really make it in the office. And the office has been uh, saddled with additional issues as well. So it's been a major change. And the one thing that might not have occurred to you but that my surgical friends have told me, is they don't know where the regular surgical emergencies went yeah. in the COVID yeah. era. Exactly. Seriously, nobody's having appendicitis. Right. Nobody's having gallbladder disease and gallstones that need to be removed. The routine things that are emergencies that general surgeons like me do, they're not happening, or happening at a very, very, very low level. And they're wondering, What's going on? And it, you probably have read there's very there's fewer cardiac events, fewer yep. myocardial infarctions. That's all. That's always good. There's probably less outside activity. But there are few, fewer cardiac
2: procedures and every other kind of procedure you can imagine. That is an insight in occurrence. I've talked with my friends who are orthopods, and you know, quarantining probably didn't help the situation. They didn't didn't make these joints uh, all of a sudden much better. So there was a little bit of stacking and queuing, right? For some of these procedures, people really needed to get in for the relief that they were looking for. But on the other hand, this phenomenon that you brought up of of the acute attacks, what happened to them? And was it just, is everybody more chill and they're just staying at home and, and just not exerting themselves? Who, I mean, yet on the other hand, there are people who, The emergencies went up because people are falling off ladders because they're cleaning their roof or their gutters or (laughs) Home
1: (laughs) Depot and Lowe's, they see the revenue increase. Oh my
2: goodness, you bet. So, just
3: just one comment is you always wonder about the statistic that's been out there for some period of time about 30% of what we do in healthcare is regarded as waste or uh, overutilization. And I'm wondering if you, uh, some of that, that you might see is it's just um, people not coming in for things that they traditionally would have come in for if covid had not been there and they're just saying i'm not going to the doctor for that and it turns out that it's not something of significance so that great, could just great be point. Some, great point great well,
2: point what do you both I, what, what what do you both think about the fact that um, there are people who have true—I mean, it's not imagined—they have true symptoms and they have true disease or issues, but they were afraid to go to the hospital because I don't want to get sick. It's people who have comorbidities who are the ones that are getting sick. So maybe you know, what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's quite real,
0: and um, so there, there's a great concern. Actually, there's a notice in the uh, the Daily AMA News today that oncologists are concerned about a wave of delayed cancer treatment. And right. of course, when you delay that, and you go from stage one or two, that might be resectable to stage four, yeah. that's not resectable. No. That's a very serious problem. And so folks are putting off things that they might have looked into before.
2: Right. Part of that,
0: Chuck, is you're correct. It's overuse, but part of it is real. And so I mentioned, um, you know, surgeons and uh, cardiac surgeons and so on, cardiologists, but the um, our oncologists are also seeing fewer patients and most of those they don't really consider elective. So they're, they're really right. concerned that they're going to be hit with a wave of advanced disease in three, four five months or whenever patients feel comfortable going back to their doctor's offices. I've been to, I don't know if you've all been to doctor's offices, but I can tell you that maybe I'm just extra careful, but I don't want to get in an elevator with anybody Yeah, gloves. I don't want to touch anything that anybody else has touched. And, um, and that's me. And you know, we kind of know what to avoid. Other folks just want to avoid the building completely.
1: My doctor wouldn't even let me in the building. If I was ill, feeling ill at all, if I felt good and I'm just there for an, you know, a COVID antibody, I could come in and you take the stairs, you couldn't take the elevator. So yeah, they're keeping all the, uh, all the people who again, undiagnosed illness outside um, and then allowing, you know, those who are healthy routine visits to come in. And I'm sure that's not uncommon.
3: Yeah, but I, I think that there will probably be a backlog of serious uh, problems that people have just put off, um, you know, again, uh, I've got a little chest pain, but, uh, I'm not, you know, maybe it's not something I feel like I'm going to take a chance of going into an emergency room for, or things like, uh, aneurysms or as Michael said, uh, some type of oncological, you know, problem. And I do think that there's going to be a, a backlog of that and we'll see a surge when people start feeling more comfortable going back to facilities.
2: I think so too, Chuck, I, I really believe that there is a queuing up or a you know, a line that's forming for these people. And the key, I I have an opinion. I'd like to hear yours. What's the key? What's going to get these people feeling comfortable? You you go to your, you know, the dentist, I think there's, you know, we talk about deferred maintenance with our homes and buildings and things like that. Well, what about the notion of deferred maintenance with, with people, with us, what's going to make us feel comfortable enough to really come back to the hospital, come back to the doctor's office?
0: You know, Chuck and I talk about this about every other day. (laughs) and, uh, and for a lot of people are, uh, I I, I've heard that dentists and dental offices are even more impacted adversely than physician offices and who who in their right mind wants to go in for a routine teeth cleaning Cleaning. at this point in time. I mean, I've put mine off and maybe a lot of other people have too. I think, you know, this is just my opinion. I, I don't, Think we're going to be able to come out of this medically until we have a, an effective vaccine, not maybe the first vaccine that comes off the line and who knows how effective it is, but one that, uh, that hundreds of millions of U S citizens can, can take and, and feel confident that they are protected against the disease short of that just, you know, we're, we're we, or at least, you know, Chuck and I, we're very good about wearing masks and gloves. A lot of our, our cohorts out in the community are not. We, we also talk about that every other day. But until we can be sure that we're safe against uh, everybody else in the community, I don't think we're going to be comfortable going not only to doctor's offices, but to restaurants and, and meetings and all those professional things we used to do. Uh it seems like so long ago, but it was only like four or five months now.
3: Yeah. People have different levels of risk tolerance and you you look at that just when you're as as I told Michael, we're we drive to the grocery store and they throw groceries in the trunk of our car, but I watch the people that are going in the grocery store and the percent of them that have masks and the percent that have no mask. And so I think people's Risk aversion or riskiness uh, as to whether or not they're willing to go into a health facility to get checked up uh, or get something checked out has something to do with me. I'm with Michael. I, when there's a vaccine, uh, I will feel very comfortable and I've taken the vaccine and <clears throat> know that that works. But <clears throat> for other people, I think it's one of those things where whether or not I really know that I'm in trouble, I'm having an emergency event and uh, I have to go to the emergency room or this is bothering me and I'll take a chance of going to my primary care or my specialist to get this checked out. And that's, that just is a continuum of uh, risk, riskiness that you see in the regular population. A lot of people aren't going to come back till they feel that it's safe and that the hospitals and health systems convince them that they're taking every precaution that they can that's out there, and they are implementing that without fail. That they're being a high reliability healthcare system exactly, and they're taking everything to keep you safe. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah I think that what's happening. I, I had the experience you know I've gone to my physician's office and I've also gone to get my car serviced, and and it's it was almost the same. This the experience was mm-hmm. almost the same, because you know when I brought my car in there was glass you know a plexiglass and I couldn't get out of my car and they needed my key so but they they come up masked and they have their gloved and they spray disinfectant on a paper towel and I have to put my key in the paper towel you know it's just it's the same thing as going to the doctor but I but I think what's happening and you have both talked about this we have to demonstrate in order to for people to feel comfortable we have to take this extremely seriously and demonstrate that we are doing absolutely everything we can to protect the patient. And, you know, they're probably doing more to protect themselves from the patient, but they're giving the impression that we are protecting you. We're taking this seriously. We're providing, to the full extent possible, a, uh, an environment that really won't allow transmission. You
0: know, Roger, you're, you brought up a point, and, I, and Chuck and I have also talked about this we feel like businesses in our community are in many ways doing more, at least publicly, than we see our healthcare providers doing. You know, when I, uh, my car came up with an electronic notice that it needed its one-year service and I called to schedule it and they said, oh, we'll come pick it up from you. Totally, total contactless I mean, not even go to the dealership. They they came and picked up the car and kept it for a day and brought it back and it was all clean and everything. And, and and other, you know, when the grocery store that we go to, they're they're spraying the carts before. You know, we used to do that ourselves. We don't have to do that anymore. And all those things, we're not. Maybe we're missing it, but we're not seeing that. That kind of public um, communication. safety communication right. coming from our healthcare providers. Just not exactly. seeing that, Chuck. I, I'm not seeing what I think I should be. We should be seeing.
3: No, I mean, we we obviously have a mixed message uh, across the country about what is safe. You know, safe practice. And while everybody says mass social distancing and hand washing, those are just kind of the um, the three things that you have to do. Uh, people across the country message different things about, um, you know, how important those are and you see the behaviors. I mean, the yeah. behaviors demonstrate that. So.
1: In the last show um, we actually did spend a fair amount of time on that, Chuck. You talked about again, from nursing and allied healthcare providers, you know, what, what were we, what was the workforce engagement, which for the listeners in the audience, category five workforce engagement with Baldridge. Mm-hmm. Um, what were, you know, we talked about what nurses and allied health were feeling before COVID and then after COVID. I'm curious, Michael, kind of your vantage point, again, from the physician perspective, you know, what were some of the struggles that we had pre COVID and now coming out of COVID relative to that physician community where many are now employed physicians, um, uh, want to be employed physicians? There's a myriad of, of kind of physician uh, allocation in the market.
0: Well, let me just comment on that. So in the pre-COVID days, we're going to call those the good old days. <laughs> they were in many ways not so great for physicians. Now, um, you know, I, I think to be professionally satisfied and engaged, uh, it's it's, cru- it's important to be doing meaningful work day. And I think physicians went into medicine to do meaningful work to help people. And they're doing that. But there were, again, in the good old days, a lot of uh, negatives that we heard about: problems with uh, reimbursement, declining reimbursements; right. problem with uh, uh, problems with additional documentation and paperwork required, not 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 only not only for the medical record, but also to be reimbursed. Problems with the electronic medical record, which didn't seem to be designed for physicians, but rather for uh, financial the business office, office documentation right. and the yeah, business the billing, office, the
1: billing organization, yeah. right.
0: Right. right? So even in the best of times, there were issues with physicians. We add on top of that COVID with the kind of problems that we we talked about a few minutes ago, and we have instead of declining reimbursements, we have absent reimbursements. And, um, you know, I know physicians who who haven't taken money from their practice for four or five months now and are struggling to keep their staff on board. And some are accessing the uh, Paycheck uh, Protection Program right, PPP. For, to do that, to pay their staff. But that doesn't pay them. Right. So yeah. they've got and they've got these increased office costs and PPE like they've never used before. And I uh, never had to purchase before and, uh, and also they've got frustration. <clears throat> and let me just say that, um, we clearly were caught unawares or shorthanded short supplied with regard to PPE as an intensivist. I'm a, I'm a surgical intensivist and physician. I have, and I retired, you know, last June, I have never, ever reused PPE not in my entire professional life. Right. In my whole life in the ICU and the operating room and everywhere else I was always using protective equipment. Right. Never reused it. I would have if someone would have caught me reusing it, they would have reported me. And so now there
1: uh,
0: doctors and others are caught in a situation where they're kind of forced to reuse their PPE or use it between patients which we never did. And so there's these professional issues in addition to the financial and the other ones on top. So we, I think it's very rough time for physicians. And it's, I mean, I just want to say this, you mentioned it before, it, it's a good time to be engaged in something that supersedes all that, which includes the Baldridge framework and high reliability. Those did not change. And one of the things, and Chuck and I, uh, you know, Chuck and I have ridden out a number of crises, not COVID, but we've had major hurricanes and floods, and the last big one in Houston was Hurricane Harvey, where most of our hospitals were flooded in or flooded out for five consecutive days. So staff, whoever, whatever staff was there, was there for five days, and they alternated twelve-hour shifts. And uh, what I, I was very worried that with the those uh, emergent conditions that we would have, you know, medication errors or other kinds of serious safety events, but everything was said and done. And we reviewed all of our records. We had, with staff working 12 hour shifts consecutively, one after the other, um, we had no serious safety events in in during Hurricane Harvey, which was absolutely remarkable. And that included a hospital evacuation.
1: Wow. That's, you know, that's
2: that's a, oh, Go ahead and check, please.
3: I was just going to say those staff, they literally stayed at the hospital for five days yeah, and yeah. they alternated and because uh, they could not get in or out. And it was a pretty remarkable achievement to say we had no significant harm events uh, during that uh, entire Harvey episode, which was remarkable.
2: Well, you know, we were talking, Lisa and I were actually talking earlier today with some of our colleagues at Soar Vision Group about the fact that in healthcare we're so good in an emergency situation, aren't we? In when something happens, when there's a natural disaster, where there's something unexpected, everybody, all hands on deck, there's the hierarchy goes away. Everybody pitches in to do what needs to be done. But even an extreme situation like Harvey, which was five days, it's five days. We're talking about five months we've been yes, at this. exactly, And, yes. and uh, so I'm really interested in, you know, and, and, you know, you guys, Chuck, you and Lisa are nurses and Michael, a surgeon, you're used to wearing masks and you're, but boy, people, not, people are not used to wearing, I'm the kind of doctor that can't help anybody, you know, so I don't have to wear masks or so masking what I do, but, okay. but even breathing into a mask is exhausting for a long period of time. What is this doing to the the psyche of people that are forced into this very very different work environment? And what are we doing to help encourage them?
3: Yeah, let me. I'm going to ask Michael to address that from a physician perspective. But we talked about this in our last segment. I think that hurricanes, tornadoes, mass shootings, major crisis situations are time limited events, yeah. and we do shine. Uh, During those type of events, everybody pulls together. Hurricane Harvey, we contacted personally all 27,000 employees to make sure they were okay. We we marshaled everybody together to just do what we had to do. This is so different because there is no time on this. And if those same people that worked five straight days for 12 hours had to stay there for weeks on weeks on weeks, they would be burnout and we were experiencing burnout in a lot of clinical areas, expertise prior to uh, the pandemic and especially in physicians. And so I, you know, I'd like for Michael to talk about, we talked about burnout, um, as, as part of the engagement for in our last segment, but I'd like for Michael maybe to specifically talk about physician burnout and, you know, from an engagement standpoint, what has the pandemic, Done for physicians in that regard.
0: Well, let me just draw back. There was one long-playing um, uh, infectious disease problem that I had a, a major clinical role during, and that was. But it was different, and that was um, the first decade or so of AIDS
2: mm-hmm. of HIV.
0: Yep. yep. And I was a trauma surgeon, general surgeon, surgical intensivist, taking care of patients both in the ED, the operating room, the ICU, and 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 what something one thing was very similar then to now, and that is that every patient had to be treated as if they were infected. You had to, because you, you had no way of knowing. Never
1: knew. Same right. way
0: as you, an asymptomatic COVID patient you don't know who's spreading, and they have no symptoms at all. And so I will say that at that time, uh, you know, uh, when we learned how it was transmitted by, by body fluids, a needle stick was enough to give you AIDS at that time. And any number of healthcare workers have, physicians and nurses and others have, have died from, died in that era from needle sticks. It was over a decade until there was a, a single effective treatment. Of course, today there are there are many treatments. And the and the docs stood up. I mean, for that and the nurses and others, we created age wards. We didn't hesitate to see patients. Didn't hesitate to take them to the operating room, but we were very careful. We developed new procedures for sharps and things like that that were kept on the back table away from us as surgeons, where we might uh, grab them uh, accidentally. And and we we uh, we worked through it. But we didn't yes. close down the health system. Well, we didn't Did shut it down. We didn't close down. down the health system. We didn't impair uh, income, okay? Right, right. Now this is different, okay? Folks are pulling together, but a, a number of, of of adverse events we haven't even talked about yet have occurred. Those that are, you know, after nurses and others have worked their tails off through the pandemic, health systems and individual offices are hurting so financially right. that they're. Furloughing and laying off these workers and doctors, right? And reduced for, for doctors that are employed in medical groups, many hundreds across the company a country have reduced their wages. Of course, bonuses and things like that, and uh, executive pay has been uh, for for executive physicians. That's all been uh, reduced. Uh, And of course, if you're in private practice, you have the problems I talked about earlier So in addition to all those other things you've got the financial on top of it these are folks with kids in private schools and mortgages and that you know have to have to be maintained and so um, It's a it's a very significant load and I wonder and Chuck and I have talked about whether those that are in private practice are seeing that Things like this can happen, which have never happened before, whether they're going to be seeking a more stable form of of income uh, with employment, with a medical group, or have their practices bought. And we're beginning to see in modern healthcare practice groups after practice groups being acquired by private equity and by um, major national insurance companies.
2: You know, we're seeing the same trend. You know, you brought that up. It reminds me of the trends that we all saw, and Chuck, you'll remember this very clearly, all the consolidation of, of the private individual hospitals. Right. They realized they can't operate on their own anymore, so they've got to aggregate, and it made them targets, right? That's how right. Memorial Hermann grew, for example, correct?
3: Yes, Yes, through aggregation and new growth, right.
2: Well, this is fascinating stuff.
1: And actually, I'm super excited to let our audience know that we're going to have these two guests back. So um, for next week's show, Chuck and Michael, thank you for your time today. Roger, thanks for being the amazing co-host you are. I'd also like to thank um, Mike Salmon. He's our producer from Business Radio X, um, who puts on a great show uh, every week. So thank you so much. And again, we will be back with another segment where we will unpack some common themes that we've talked about today. And we will see you next week.